The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew 27 is where we will look today. And uh, if you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here. And uh, I want you to know that typically we don't, we don't deal with financial issues in the middle of our service. Um, but we're taking care of some housekeeping uh, because of some needs we have here. And we want you to know that our focus is not here on finances above all things. Our focus is on, on Christ above all things. And I, I pray that that comes through in the rest of it. But, but fortunately, uh, we do uh, have to deal with some things that are housekeeping sometimes. And I'm so thankful for the giving through the years. I'm so thankful for the faithfulness. I'm thankful for these three men that have, um, that have come and explained to us today. Uh, and, and I'm so thankful that, as Buddy prayed, that we do have a God who has provided and will provide and is on His throne and is in control. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. Well, this morning we're going to look at our fourth saying from the cross. We're in the middle of this series, Seven Words. And we're looking at these seven sayings, these seven last sayings of Jesus as he's in these last hours of his life dying on the cross. And today this word is forsaken. There's probably no uglier word in the English language. There may be some that are close, but there's probably no uglier word than the word forsaken. And it just seems so final, doesn't it? So hopeless, so sad, forsaken. A man can be forsaken by his friends. A wife can be forsaken by her husband. A child can be forsaken by its parents. And it's final. And it's probably something that many of you have walked through or are walking through, maybe even at this moment, being forsaken by some in some way. And now, here in this passage, as we'll read in just a second, we see Jesus in this moment being forsaken. Don't ever think that as you walk this life and you live in pursuit of following Christ, don't ever think that we serve a God or we follow a Savior who does not understand what you and I go through. Jesus has put himself in the place of being forsaken. And we're going to look at why this morning. If you will, turn to Matthew 27, and I want to read. I'll give you the larger context as I read verses around, but we're going to focus this morning on verse 46. But I'll begin reading in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We see in this moment, in this passage, really in this one verse that we'll focus on this morning, Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I don't know about you, but for me, there are plenty of questions that come out of this. It should cause us to question. There's at least four questions that I see coming out of this, and there are many more that I could have brought before you today, many more that maybe you might have that I won't answer. 
But our God's big enough to answer all of these. But I want to give you four of these questions today. They are this. Is God a forsaking God? Is this part of His character? Is this part of His nature? Is this what He does? Is He a God that's, that's whimsical and that, that rules and reigns on a whim where one minute if He's in a good mood, He's faithful, but it, it may change on a dime? Is this what we're seeing here? Is God a forsaking God? Secondly, did, did God really here forsake Jesus? Is this a real God-forsakenness that Jesus is enduring? Third, did Jesus forsake God in this moment? When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Is his faith faltering? Did Jesus forsake God? And then fourth is this, and I think this one is where it hits home. Will God forsake us? I want to quickly run through these and and look at the text and answer these questions from the whole of the counsel of God's Word. First, is God a forsaking God? Well, Jesus has never been, up until this point, never been forsaken by God. This was obviously something that was not normal. Jesus was crying out here in a new experience. This is something he had never known from God. He had never been forsaken by God, and that's why he cries, My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Out of all the the other things that he's suffering in this moment, this is what causes reaction from him. Oh, he calmly will speak to others. He will calmly tell the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. He will calmly tell John to behold his mother and for his mother to behold her son. But here in this moment, he reacts and he responds to God and he cries out because this is not normal. This is not a pattern of God. We see in eternity past, when we go all the way back to Genesis 1, before any creation really was, was, was going, it was in the middle of going on, God says to God, let us Make man in our image. We see in that there's this fellowship and communion within the Trinity that, that is constant. God doesn't make man because God is lonely and deficient in some way. Needs companionship. He already has companionship perfectly between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And this is not normal. Uh, In eternity past, Jesus had never been forsaken of God. In the 33 years that Jesus walked on the planet, Jesus was not forsaken by God. How many times did he say, my Father always hears me. My Father is always with me. But here we see him and we, we hear him through the pages of Scripture cry, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? A.W. Pink, in his book on these seven last words, says, The hiding of God's face from him was the most bitter ingredient of that cup that the Father had given the Redeemer to drink. This is what causes him to cry. God's not a forsaking God. Jesus has never been forsaken. God's people had never been forsaken. The Israelites had seen God deliver them over and over. If you look through their history, when they're held in captivity in Egypt, they cry out, and who hears? God hears. God sends a deliverer. 
When they're fleeing from Egypt after Pharaoh has finally let them go only to change his mind and chase after them, and they're up against the banks of the Red Sea looking at this water that is now impassable for them, they cry out, and who hears? God. God parts the waters in the Red Sea, and they cross over. God's not forsaken them. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are are placed into that fiery furnace because they won't bow down to the image of a wicked king, there's a fourth man in the fire, and who is that fourth man? That fourth man is the Lord himself. I point that out to you because when we come to this question, when when Jesus is here asking, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? This is not a normal behavioral pattern for God. God is not trite. He is faithful. It caused David to write in Psalm 37, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Our God is a faithful, consistent God. And to which I would even ask the question to you here this morning, is there any of you in this room who can bring charge against God for forsaking you? The reality is you may have gone through seasons where things got tight and hard. You may be in the middle of one of those seasons now, but you can not honestly say, looking back through the history of your life, that God has completely and totally forsaken you. He never has. Even those of you who are here that are not believers, you cannot say, even as a non-believer, that God has forsaken and abandoned you. Because every day, you draw on His benefits every day. The breath that's in your lungs the functioning of your body that you cannot explain, the sun that comes up in the morning, all of those things are common graces of a God who has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. So, to answer the first question, is God a forsaking God? The answer is unequivocally no. He's not a God who is trite or it is His nature to forsake. Then the second question, then, did God really forsake Jesus here? Is, he, is there a real forsakenness going on? Well, if not, why does Jesus use the language he uses? Is, is Jesus here simply exaggerating? Is he being overly dramatic? Is Jesus from the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me when he really doesn't mean forsaken? Well, we have no reason to believe that. Because Jesus has been nothing but honest and level-headed and others serving. So here we we have no reason to believe that he's taking up his own self-serving exaggeration and claiming that God's doing something that he knows he's really not. We, We have every reason to believe that God is here indeed forsaking Jesus. If if that's really what's happening, we see a couple of things. If God is really forsaking Jesus in this moment, then we see a couple of things, and they are this, that first of all, how awful must sin really be? For Jesus to be forsaken in this moment, how awful must sin must really be? I mean, think back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they listen to the serpent and they disobey and they take from the tree from which God has warned them not to take from and they eat. 
What's the first thing they do when God comes into the garden? They hide, don't they? Have they ever hidden from God before? Have they ever been afraid of Him before? Have they ever shrunk back from His presence? The answer is no. They never have. This is new to them. All of a sudden, they feel shame. They're naked and they're aware of it. And they can't face God, so they attempt to hide in the bushes. Not only are they in a moment hiding from God, but God winds up expelling them from the garden. And this expelling them from the garden is what's known as spiritual death. They are dying in this moment. They may be physically alive, but they are spiritually dying in this moment. See, spiritual death, what it means is is to be separated from God. And here what Adam and Eve's sin ushered into them and to all humanity since then has been this separation from God, having to be cast out from God because God is holy and we are sinful and we cannot be where God is. It's possible to be physically alive and spiritually dead. The prodigal father knew this about his prodigal son. In Luke 15, when finally this son who's gone away wasting his inheritance on riotous or wild living, when he finally comes home, the father says, this son of mine who was dead is alive again. What's the qualifier there? What What does he mean there? What does he mean he was dead, now he's alive? Well, the only thing he could possibly mean is that he was away from me. There was separation between he and I. He was dead in that moment in a sense, but now he's been brought back and he's now alive again. Spiritual death, what I want you to see, separation from God is one of the consequences of sin. So, In order for Jesus to fully bear the full curse of sin, then He must bear all of its consequences. So, in this moment, Jesus stepping in as a substitute for all who would by faith believe in God's rescue bears the full consequences of sin. And He endures this spiritual death, if you will, in a sense, separated from the Father. Galatians 3 says it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, if Jesus here doesn't endure this separation, then he can't be fully bearing the full consequences and the full weight of the wrath of God for sin. But instead, he subjects himself to it, and it's For that reason that he is being forsaken by God. How truly awful must sin be? Second thing we see though in this is that if God is really forsaking Jesus here, then how holy and how absolutely committed to justice must God be? I mean, isn't this his own son? Haven't you heard someone say, I just can't believe in a God who would do that to his own son? We have this idea that we're talking about God's Son. Why wouldn't God make an exception for His own Son? To which I would ask you the question, what would you think of a judge who played favorites? What would you call him? Would you not use words like corrupt, unjust? In order for God to be truly a just 
judge. Then he can't pull favorites. He can't play favorites with his own son. If Jesus, his own son, has come to be the substitute for the sin of all who would ever believe, then he must punish his own son in their place. God here is punishing his son. He's committed to justice. He's committed to holiness. Habakkuk 1.13 describes God in this way. It says, He's of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Psalm 55, or, or 5, verses 4 through 5 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. And if Christ here is stepping in, becoming sin for us, then the character of God and his commitment to holiness and justice doesn't change. He punishes his son in the same way. Again, A.W. Pink says, At the cross, man did a work. He displayed his depravity by taking the perfect one with, and with wicked hands nailing him to the tree. At the cross, Satan did a work. He manifested his insatiable enmity against the woman's seed by bruising his heel. At the cross, the Lord Jesus did a work. He died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And at the cross, God did a work. He exhibited his holiness and satisfied his justice by pouring out his wrath on the one who was made sin for us. How committed must God be to his holiness and to justice? So did God really forsake Jesus in this moment? You better believe he did. Because sin is awful. And our God is just. So third question in this that comes out of this that we must ask ourselves in this moment, did Jesus forsake God? Is that what's going on here? Is Jesus finally having this moment of weakness that all of us know all too well? Is Jesus finally showing what we know and breaking down in the heat of this moment? Is, he, is that what he's doing when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he saying, God, I have done everything that you have asked me to do, and now you're turning your back on me? Is he cursing God in this moment? Is, is his faith failing? Well, I would argue to you that the answer is no. Because what he's doing here in saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just coming up with these original words on his own in this moment, but instead he's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. A psalm of David where David says the same thing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in so doing, when Jesus quotes this psalm, he's actually expressing trust in it. He's expressing trust in God, not a lack of it. If these were just words pulled out of thin air and we had no other reference that we could point to, then we might say this could possibly be a moment of weakness. But Jesus here quoting this is his doubling down, his double grip on God, trusting and believing, in, even in the middle of this darkness. See, because Jesus knows more than the first line in Psalm 22. He knows how the psalm finishes as well. 
Sure, David in verses 1 and 2 says, Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. But David goes on in verse 3 and he says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And Jesus knows in this moment the answer to his question. He's answering his own question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's answering his own question and pointing to the psalm. He knows that the holiness of God is what's brought him here. In this moment, I want you to see that in this moment, you may think that you're the only one who knows such an hour of darkness. That you're tempted to not believe. Jesus in this moment has walked into the moment of the greatest darkness. Not only was it dark in the land in the middle of day between noon and three in the day, but there was a darkness going on in the war of his soul. And even in this darkness where it looks like there is no way out for him, he is choosing to believe and trust God. He quotes... He quotes Psalm 22, and I would do you no favors if I didn't let you hear the rest of Psalm 22. So I'm going to read this. And I, I just, I don't, don't just hear me reading a passage of Scripture. Hear this in the context of Jesus crying, my God, my God, the first line of this passage of this psalm. Hear this in that context and realize that Jesus, knowing all of Scripture, is pointing to what you're going to hear here. Psalm 22, verse 4 says, In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, for my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. See, when Jesus here is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a random cry of faithlessness. But instead, it is a pointing back to the faithfulness that God has displayed all throughout history. When Jesus here cries, my God, my God, 
He is what Spurgeon referred to as taking a double grip on his God in the middle of darkness. He's not in this moment letting go of his God, but he is doubled, doubling down on his grip. This is such a lesson for us that, you know, trusting God is easy in, in moments of light, isn't it? When you're around those people that, that love God and that are supportive and, and, and there's no tragedy in your life, there's no hardship in your life, things are just going well, it's, it's easy in those moments to trust God. But let those things be taken from you. Let your health be taken from you. Let your friends be taken from you. Let your church be taken from you. And you have nothing and no one to hold on to and it looks like there is no way out. Will your faith double down on the promises of God, or will you in that moment release? Jesus is by no means releasing his grip on God. He is even more so crying, my God, my God, knowing exactly why he's there. Which brings us to the last question. Will God forsake us? Will God forsake us? We see how awful sin is and how committed to justice God is, and we are right to become afraid. We look at this and we say, you know, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done wrong. Maybe not as wrong as some people, but according to the holiness of God, I know that I have done wrong. And I see how committed God is to justice, and you're right to be afraid in that moment. And you look at this and you hear me say that Jesus is not faltering in faith, but instead he's doubling down. And you know the strength of your own faith. And you know that in a moment like this that you're not sure how you would respond. And you're right to be afraid. We read verses like Nahum 1.6 and we understand that we have no, choice, no, no chance. It says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. We read things like that and we come to this and we say, we are without hope. Surely God will forsake us. But then we come to passages like Ephesians 5 too. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The youth this morning, as they looked at Sunday school, they talked about these offerings that were offered in the Old Testament. And one of the things that's repeated in, the, in Leviticus about these offerings is that they would produce a fragrant offering. That word there, is, that, that phrase is meant to convey that, that if it's a fragrant offering, it is an offering that is received by Christ. And here we see that Jesus has offered himself and become this fragrant, received offering, this sacrifice for us. In other words, Christ was the bull that was carried outside of the camp in Leviticus 16. He is the leper that had to live outside the camp by himself in Leviticus 13. He is the bronze serpent that was lifted up on the pole in that day, a reminder of the curse in that day when Jesus was on the cross, he himself becoming an actual curse. He wore the crown of thorns on his head to show, going all the way back to Genesis 3, when God says to Adam, from now on, you're going to work against the land. The land will not work with you, and it will produce thorns and thistles. And when Jesus takes this crown of thorns on his head, he is showing that he is bearing all of the curse for us. 
So what's the answer? Will God forsake us? Well, it depends. If you are trusting in Christ as your substitute, putting no stock in anything else that you can bring to the table, if you're trusting in Christ alone as the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice that has been offered, then no, He will never forsake you. According to Galatians 2.20, we have already been crucified with Christ. That's how God sees us. If by faith we're trusting in Christ, we've already been crucified with Him. The punishment has already been dealt out. It's been laid on Him. There is no more condemnation for us. But, if you reject Christ's offering, if you look at this and say, I still can't believe can't believe in a 2,000-year-old dead man. This is just opiate for the masses. This is just delusion of people that are seeking help that have invented something of their own. If you reject Christ's offering, then sadly, whether you believe it or not, I'm here to tell you that yes, He will forsake you. It will not be for three hours. It will be forever. There is a forsakenness that is coming. And you say, well, what's the big deal? What do I care if God has, if He really abandons me? Don't you recall that in the beginning I said that there's not been a day of your life where God has abandoned you. You have known His grace to this moment, whether you have acknowledged it or not. But there will come a day in your sin, trusting in yourself and not Him, that He will abandon you and pull back all grace. You will be separated from Him in a place of torment called hell where you will last forever in a state of spiritual death and dying. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7 when he said, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, On those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. You may think, oh, it will not be any big thing for me to be separated and, and, and to be abandoned and forsaken by God. And you're speaking of a category in which you do not know. You know nothing of that torment because of His grace to this moment. Jesus, in this moment, was forsaken so that you and I could be forgiven. We, through faith, have been shut up in Christ so that by no means we will be shut out from Christ. Jesus, when it comes to this moment, this awful moment of drinking this bitter ingredient of the cup that the Father gives to him, he does not push back sin, but instead he puts away sin. And he endured quite the price for that. And so I would invite you today to turn from your sin, turn from trusting in yourself, and put your faith squarely and totally on this finished work of Christ. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that you have indeed paid. Lord, we thank you that you were forsaken, that we wouldn't have to be. That you have taken the full curse, that you have taken the full weight of it. God, we thank you for providing Christ, providing the atonement that was needed. God, I thank you for that. And Lord, now in these moments, I pray, God, that the ears of those who've heard this sermon, God, would be opened. More than opened on a cognitive level, but God, that they would be opened to where they might be received spiritually. God, that you would bring people to life and call them to yourself. God, be gracious and merciful. You have displayed yourself to be that. You've displayed yourself to be faithful. And so, God, I'm asking you to simply be who you are and do what you do and save people in this time. For your own glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you just a minute to, uh, to think about what's been said, to, to contemplate the forsaking of Jesus by God for you. And whatever that requires of you, we want you to be obedient to do that. If that requires for you today to turn from your sin and trust Him, then I'd love to talk with you, and I'm going to be seated right here on the front. You can come during this music and, and talk to me. Um, love, to, love to talk with you and pray with you and, and lead you through. Where do we go from here? How do I trust Christ? Love to answer any of those questions for you. If today you're here and, and you know you're a believer, oh, you should have reason to praise right now. You should have reason that when Ethan is leading us in these songs to sing to the glory of God, maybe you want to sing those lyrics. Maybe you want to sit where you are and just praise God and pray to Him. Maybe you're here today and this is the church where you believe God's leading you to join. Uh, Again, I'd love for you to come and express that to me. Whatever it is that God has called you to this morning, maybe it's something that I have not named, but if God's leading you to it, Don't harden your heart. Say yes and trust Him. Let's worship God through responding in obedience. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.